This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. We are also now, in addition to being a podcast, a YouTube channel. You can find us by going to youtube.com and just putting in the word Spirit Matters Talk. Uh, we have about uh, 300 shows in our archives as well. And everything is free and available to you, uh, free of charge, as I mentioned. And uh, we thank those people that have contributed to keep us on the air and, and functioning. And if anybody wants to contribute, it's not a donation. We're not a nonprofit. But if you go to spiritmatterstalk.com, you'll see how to do it. Our guest today, uh, Jeremy David Engels. Uh, he is an award-winning professor of communication and ethics at Penn State University, as well as a yoga and meditation teacher and co-owner of Yoga Lab Studios in State College, Pennsylvania. He's the author of several books. His current book, The Ethics of Oneness, and that's what we'll be discussing uh, at length today. Uh, he considers himself to be an American transcendentalist. We'll talk about that. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Oh, it's such a privilege to be here with both of you. I'm such a fan of the podcast. It's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I spent some time over the last couple of weeks listening to some of the old episodes and you all have, wow, what an all-star lineup. So it's such a, an honor to be, uh, to be here with you. Well, You're thank you very much. Company. Jeremy, um, as it happens, we are recording this on uh, July, 14, uh, July 12th, 2021, Henry David Thoreau's birthday. <laughs> Did you plan that? No, I just uh, <laughs> posted something about it on Facebook. So I want to make sure we evoke uh, Thoreau at least a bit when we uh, discuss your book. Let's begin by uh, telling us, by having you tell our listeners something about your own spiritual background, what brought you to the uh, work that you do, and to your new book about the ethics of oneness, in which you talk about the transcendentalist. Sure. Um, so we were, we were talking a little bit before just getting to know each other. Um, I'm a professor at Penn State now, and uh, my academic life has been a series of moving further and further east, but I grew up in the Midwest in Kansas, um, in Wichita, um, which is a, you know, big Midwestern city, and um, we were just back in Wichita for the first time in about 18 months to see family, um, because the pandemic, you know, made it so that we were, we were here, um, and uh uh, seeing the landscape and just revisiting this place that was home for so long brought back a lot of memories about my own spiritual journey and my own spiritual path. And I was reminded of what for me was a really important moment in my life. In April um, 1991, there was a terrible um, tornado that hit my hometown and uh, it actually was on the ground for about 69 miles. It was an F5 tornado, so the most severe class of tornadoes. And it completely devastated a nearby town to Wichita that a lot of my extended family lived in. And fortunately, no one of my family was hurt. But in the aftermath of that just devastating event, I mean, we're used to tornadoes in Kansas, but not that kind of destruction. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation in my family about how could this happen? 
you know, how could God allow this to happen? And for me, the more interesting question than that, I mean, I didn't know I was just 11 at that point. And so I didn't realize that's the kind of question that people have been asking for thousands of years. But to me, the really interesting question was actually seeing what happened in the aftermath of that tornado when you had people of different races, genders, sexualities, nationalities, speaking different languages from different socioeconomic classes coming together to help each other out. You know, there's a way in which disaster can bring out the best of the human spirit, our better angels. We saw that to a certain extent after 9-11. I was really interested in that moment of opening to connection. And I was interested in how quickly it seemed like it slammed shut again. Um, You know, Wichita was in the center of a lot of the anti-abortion movement and protests when I was growing up. And it was really a hotbed of uh, evangelical Christianity. And very quickly after the tornado, there was this rhetoric and talk about how well, this was God punishing us for our sins, punishing us for abortion or for, you know, people being gay. And I realized in that moment that I had absolutely no patience for that kind of rhetoric or that kind of spirituality, that kind of religion. It broke my heart, really literally. And it set me on the path to looking for something different. Um, There was a great book I don't know, it's been 10 years ago or so called What's the Matter with Kansas? And it was a, you know, it was a history of um, how Kansas, which was once an incredibly progressive place, has become one of the most conservative states in the country. But there's one really funny line in that book that stuck with me. Um, The author describes Wichita, my hometown, as the place where trends go to die. Um, and it's like grunge hit Wichita three or four years after it hit the coasts. And, uh, you know, it's this land of fast food restaurants and strip malls. And there is wonderful culture and music there. But it's almost like this kind of homogenized, whitewashed vision of, you know, American suburbia in a lot of ways. And so I didn't have access to the same temples or centers of spiritual learning that my friends who grew up in Colorado or California or New York did, I really kind of had to chart my own path. And I did it largely through reading books, um, studying meditation in in books and things like that. Um, But since leaving Kansas and grad school and coming to Penn State, I've been really fortunate to build a sangha of you know, kind of meditation misfits is how I tend to think of us, highly educated, really deeply compassionate practitioners of yoga and meditation. And so at some point, um, you know, it was really after grad school, I really got into the physical practice of yoga. And that took me to India four times to study and to learn. Um, After I got tenure, I studied Latin and Greek because I wanted to be able to understand some of the foundations of Western culture, and I've been studying Sanskrit also. And uh, it's led to this moment of writing this book, The Ethics of Oneness, which is something that I've been thinking about, you know, honestly, since that tornado, but really deeply researching for about the last 10 years or so. Let, let me let me ask you, I have a question. Uh, sure. you, you consider yourself a transcendentalist. When I think of the transcendentalist, I think of Emerson, Thoreau, that, that mm-hmm. lineage. And uh, when I think of uh, oneness, 
I think of others. And, uh, and uh, I, I'd like to know your connection between the transcendentalists and, um, and, what, and your commitment to, to, to teaching oneness. And if, if uh, most people in the realm, uh, what we would call transcendentalists or people that have studied or feel some commitment to that uh, with, would, would think along the same lines as you, or is your, your thinking on it quite innovative? Mm, thanks for that question. That's great. I, um, you know, trying to put a label on one's spiritual commitments is never easy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've found that of traditions of American spirituality, transcendentalism is the one that has most strongly resonated with me. So I'm thinking of Emerson and Ful Margaret Fuller and Henry David Thoreau, and especially Walt Whitman. Um, the transcendentalists, at least as I understand them, believe that everything in the world is somehow divine, um, that all living creatures have a kind of divinity. So there's a divinity in nature, there's a divinity in all beings. Um, and in that shared divinity, there is a connection, a oneness. And so one of the things that's really interesting about the transcendentalists is that um, you know, they were some of the first readers in American history of Indian philosophy. Um, and, mm. you know, Phil has covered a lot of this ground, especially in his book, American Veda, which I love so much. Um, and one of the themes that strongly resonated in particular with Emerson and in particular with Whitman was this theme of oneness in texts like the Bhagavad Gita, this theme of interconnectedness, uh, you know, Emerson calls it the oversoul um, or just soul. Um, Whitman calls it the all, or he calls it the orbic sense, um, this sense of everything being bound up together. Um, and so I tend to think of it as us being bound up in this shared project of life, uh, how we are with nature, with all other living beings, co-creating life and existence. Um, so I don't think that the connection between transcendentalism and oneness would be, I don't I think other transcendentalists would recognize that as being mm -hmm. something that makes a lot of sense. Um, Phil, mm -hmm. do you think that's fair? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I think of uh, Emerson and, and Thoreau as uh, sort of uh, advaitans in, you know, the, yeah. of, in the spirit of non-dualism, uh, even if, whether they use that term or not, I think by definition, that's, they were uh, non-dualists or the, the uh, sense of oneness was very alive in them, which leads to the question I have. I've often thought there's a difference between maybe subtle difference between recognizing that everything is interconnected mm -hmm. and oneness in the sense that um, you, you can be a materialist and just look at the, the dynamics of ecology and how things work in the world mm -hmm. and say, well, we're all connected. But oneness implies that we're not just connected, but we are one another. And I want—I wonder if you uh, make that distinction in your book, or, or at least allude to it, and how you see that. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think um, 
you know, as a communication scholar, one of the things I'm really interested in, well, I'm interested in how we, you know, how can we use language and communication to better work together to navigate the challenges of this world we live in. Um, but the words that we use to identify phenomena matter a lot, I think. Um, and so, you know, we have this vocabulary for talking about oneness. Um, and it's a pretty extensive vocabulary in English, actually, surprisingly. We have a lot of words for it. Um, I'm not sure that they always mean the same thing, as you said. Um, and one of the things I think about doing in the Ethics of Oneness project is looking at, I think, two very deeply related, but ultimately different visions of oneness that emerge out of this transcendentalism moment. Um, the first one is much more akin to the Advaitin um, non-dualist position. And I see that as being um, Emerson, especially after Emerson's son, Waldo dies. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to lose, you know, your firstborn five-year-old son as Emerson did. Um, but he, before that, was really deeply interested in ideas of oneness and non-dualism. But his philosophy takes a really strong turn towards those ideas after his son dies, because I think that they provided him with a lot of comfort. Um, the sense that, you know, there is ultimately one soul in the world. It is eternal. It does not die. And so my son, as part of that you know, cast off his material body, but his essence, his soul, his spirit lives on. Um, I think that's the position that Emerson <laughs> arrives at, which really is, I think, much more of an advice and um, non-dualist position than people give him credit for. Um, Whitman, on the other hand, I think has a much more I don't know, use the word materialist, and that might be a good word for it, actually. I mean, because Whitman was famously the poet, the, celebra the celebrator of the body, right? Um, and I think for Whitman, I mean, in the book, I make the argument that, you know, there are many different kinds of Vedanta philosophy. So Advaita, non-dualist Vedanta is one, and it's the one that became the most popular in the United States by far. Um, but there are others like Beta Abeda, which is a kind of Vedanta that's it's difference, non-difference. It means seeing difference and diversity within the oneness. And so it's somehow like the individual soul is connected to the universal soul, but it's not the same as it, mm -hmm. uh, it is. It's very difficult to explain. Um, and, uh, I think that's the position that Whitman arrived at, actually, is a position that really puts diversity at the center of oneness. Um, and so which one is right, I don't think is necessarily the right question. Um, I think these are both deep cultural trends within our culture, um, and they provide for different opportunities, different things we can do with those philosophies. Yeah. I, 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 I am curious, does, does your commitment to being a your being a transcendentalist, was that the result of you studying uh, the, the, the writings of Emerson Thoreau and others? And, and, and then did that bring you to, the, to yoga or did your practice of yoga uh, open you up to uh, the thinking about the transcendentalists 
or, or reconsidering them. And um, if it was the case that uh, first you were studying the transcendentalist, then you went to yoga, once you started practicing yoga very seriously as you have, uh, how did it, it impact your thinking about it? So a, a complicated mm -hmm. question. but That's a great question. Um, and it's a, it's a messy answer, I think, actually, of trying to figure out what came first. Um, you know, I think, honestly, probably what came first were experiences with feeling connected to nature and to the mm -hmm. world that kind of created an opening into deeper study. Um, and you know, I was really fortunate in, you know, like I said, and I, I didn't really have access to a lot of the places, spiritual centers of teaching and study that I think I would have really enjoyed when I was growing up. Um, but I did have some amazing teachers, um, in, you know, in high school and, you know, even before that. And I had one teacher in particular who taught an amazing class that he just called humanities and it was global humanities, but we read the Bhagavad Gita. We read the Tao Te Ching. We also read Emerson Whitman and Thoreau. Um, and so it almost all kind of emerged for me at the same moment. Um, and then it's come back together in interesting ways um, since then. And so I tell the story at the beginning of my book, the ethics of oneness, it was just this interesting moment. So the first time I was in India, was about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago. And I was studying at an institute in the South, the Krishnamacharya School um, in Chennai. And uh, I asked one of the teachers at the school what her favorite bookstore was in town. And so she, she told me the name of it and I found it. And so I took a rickshaw through town and uh, almost died 20 or 30 times riding on a, a rickshaw. It was, it was great. Uh, probably only realized how dangerous it was, you know, in retrospect, like so many things in life. But um, we ended up finding the Sanskrit college and it was supposedly in an alleyway across from the school. And so we found the building we thought was the building and um, it was an apartment building and it was on the sixth floor of this apartment building. And so I'm climbing up the steps and walking past little kids and like there's some chickens and it doesn't feel like the place where there would be a bookstore, mm -hmm. but there was. Um, <clears throat> so I got to the sixth floor, took off my shoes, went in. Mm -hmm. And it was this amazing place of just books piled to the ceiling. And uh, I asked the bookseller who was there, I said, um, can you recommend to me your favorite book on yoga? And she said, yeah. And so she went in the back and it felt like she was gone for a long time. I don't, I don't really know how long she was gone, but she came back and she gave me a copy of Emerson's essays from the 1860s. Um, and I have it on my bookshelf just over here. It's one of my most treasured books, but she handed this book to me and she said, this is the best book for yoga for you. Um, oh. And uh, it was just earth shattering i mean mm -hmm. like real i mean it really was this moment of serendipity that completely reoriented the kinds of research that i've been doing in academia um, i went all the way to india to study at one of the oldest yoga and most respected yoga academies in the world to go to this amazing bookstore to have her give me a copy of emerson um and uh the other part of that story that was so amazing is that as I was leaving, you know, is I was going to buy 
all the books. I was like calculating shipping costs in my head, but she gave me this book. And so that's the only book you can buy in that moment, right? I mean, this is, so I'm turning to leave and she said, hold on a second. And she grabbed a book off her desk and she gave it to me and she said, take this too. Um, and it was a copy of the Bhagavad Gita from oh. a translation that was done in the 1940s. But it was like an old, tattered, pretty nasty paperback version from the 1970s. But it was this amazing translation of the Gita that um, uses Emerson's language in the translation of the Gita. Um, and so I didn't realize this until I was just finishing up my Ethics of Oneness book. I, you know, I, I read 50, 60, 70 different translations, talked to poets who've translated the text, t translated parts of it myself as best I could with a dictionary and some help. Um, but I opened this volume as I was writing my conclusion and I had circled oversoul, which was the word that the author kept using for talking about the transcendent being. Um, and I thought, what is going on here? Um, that, you know, I'm going to India, I'm getting Emerson, I'm coming home, I'm opening up this great book of Indian wisdom and Emerson is there, there, there there's something. Um, and so I don't know if the universe was trying to say something or if it was just these um, amazing moments of coincidence, but yoga has definitely influenced the way that I study um, the transcendentalists because I'm interested in questions of practice. Um, mm -hmm. How do we actually embody these ideas? Um, but I think that the transcendentalists have also in, impacted how I study yoga because I've become really interested in the history of yoga. I mean, you know, yoga gets presented as something that's timeless and ancient, and it is indeed ancient, but it's constantly been changing um, over time. It's constantly being reinvented to meet the demands of the present. Um, and so I'm really attuned to that as well. That's a great story, Jeremy. I know uh, Chennai a bit, and so I, 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 I can imagine that happening. <laughs> and in American Veda, I tell a story about meeting uh, Sanyasi, a renunciate uh, mm -hmm. in Rishikesh. When I asked him how, why he became a renunciate, he said he, he was a secular guy who went to America to study. And while he was in America studying science, he read Emerson and wow. ended up uh, <clears throat> brought him back to his own tradition. So the, the link is very strong. Now I want to link oneness and ethics because that's yeah. the, the essence of your book and you make a case that the apprehension or uh, understanding or experience of oneness can or should lead to a kind of uh, ethical standing in the world. And a lot of people who are uh, exponents of uh, non-duality would say we have no need for ethics because it, it just is what it is. So tell us how you see that link and what it brings us to and what our, um, what it calls us to do. Yeah, um, thanks. That's a great question. And that's a conversation I've had with, with friends quite a bit is, you know, if things really are one and there is no division or difference, then there really is no need for ethics. Um, and I think that that's a position that some people do take. And I think actually that's the position that Emerson himself came to towards the end of his life, um, as the case I make in the book, where he 
really celebrates this idea of acquiescence or just bowing down to the divine, getting out of the way of the divine. Um, you know, you can do things to reform the world or your relationships, but ultimately all we really can do is just get out of the way. Um, I don't know, that idea, while comforting to some people, maybe as a, you know, busy American has always been hard for me to, uh, to swallow, I guess. And I think I've always resonated more strongly with, you know, what we might call karma yoga, right? Mm -hmm. Yoga in the world, um, yoga for householders, yoga for everyday people. Um, and my favorite verses in the Bhagavad Gita are in the sixth chapter, it's 629 through 31, but it's where Krishna tells Arjuna to see the divine in everyone, to practice seeing that divinity shining through all other beings. Um, and he has a particular agenda for why he's telling Arjuna to, to do this um, that I talk about in the book. But I think one of the things that was really, I don't know if it's innovative necessarily, um, maybe it is, um, but I think central to what the transcendentalists do with these ideas of oneness is they take this idea of seeing the divine in all things. So practicing seeing the divine and they make it about communication. They make it about speech. They make it about how we address other people. Um, and so in the book, I try to set out some ideas for thinking about, all right, what would it mean to actually speak to the divine in others, even when we disagree? Um, what might it mean to build communities based on a sense of shared divinity, a sense of shared sacredness of life, a sense, a sense of shared um, dignity and respect? Um, and so I think what an ethics of oneness is, is kind of like yoga in that I think it's always being invented and reinvented. Um, and so the book can't really tell us like forever, once and for all, what an ethics of oneness would be. But I think it can lay out some things for us to consider and to think about and to talk about collectively. And I think this is one of them. Um, you know, in our moment of, you know, just entrenched duality and what I call enemyship, this moment of, you know, resentment, um, what might it mean to try to see and speak to the divinity in others? Um, a lot of my academic friends don't like that idea. They just, they just tell me flatly, it's not going to work. And maybe it won't, I don't know, but I don't feel like we really ever try. Right. Good, good point. Yeah. By, by the way, the name of the book, uh, those listening and watching, uh, the Ethics of Oneness, Emerson Whitman and the Bhagavad Gita now available. And uh, we'll have all that information posted up. Phil, any final questions that you yeah, have? I want to bring Whitman into it because yeah. uh, <clears throat> in, in American data, I, 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 I call him a, a bhakta, that he's, he's the devotional translator. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the one who celebrates the divinity, uh, not only in every human but in everything and so um since he's in your subtitle um and his famous song of myself is often thought of as narcissism but, but i read in a very different way mm -hmm. uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the whitman-esque 
piece of this? Yeah, I think Whitman, I mean, if we want to use some of the categories from the Bhagavad Gita, um, which, which are, I think, completely appropriate, I think Bhakta is absolutely right. I mean, he's a devotional writer is what he is. I think that he, you know, his rhetoric to me is interesting because I don't feel like he's trying to persuade us of anything, but instead I think that he's laying out his own devotional practices as a, as a model um, for us. <laughs> and what I think is interesting is I think his devotion is mixed with a kind of worldly karma yoga. Um, and so it's almost like, how do we practice devotion in everyday life? Um, and I know of those readings too of Song of Myself that say that, you know, this is Whitman being narcissistic and whatnot. Um, I think if he's talking about a self in a much bigger sense, it's not narcissistic at all, um, which is, I know how you read it and how I, I read it as well. Um, in, in there, he says he's not contained between his hat and his boots, right. which I, I, right. I, I love. Yeah, I, I celebrate. I love that right? quote. Yeah, I celebrate myself. I sing myself, I think. And that, yeah, that's, that's not narcissism if no. one has a, a, a bigger sense of self. Right. That's universality. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that one of the things that's really beautiful about Whitman's poetry and about his oneness is that he takes the time explicitly to celebrate people who are not like himself, right? I mean, he celebrates <laughs> women. He celebrates um, people who are queer. He celebrates people of different races and who speak different languages. The metaphor he often uses, and I love it so much, is he talks about human beings as an ensemble, um, or he talks about us as being ensemble um, or ensemble. Um, and if everybody in an ensemble sounds exactly the same, it's not an ensemble, right? I mean, it's just one voice. Um, but instead, this celebration of diversity makes for better songs, is what he says. And um, and so I talk in the book, you know, really explicitly about, especially his poems that celebrate the body, um, because sometimes in philosophies of oneness, that can be something that can be downplayed or even forgotten. Is the fact that this spirit, this soul, is embodied, and this body itself is also sacred. So. I love Whitman. I mean, he really, he's the poet that when I'm having a bad day or I feel really bad about the state of the world, I pick up my, you know, big version of Leaves of Grass and I just flip randomly to a passage and usually I feel better. Um, yeah. And it should be noted that um, it wasn't just talk and uh, verse right. with Whitman. He he, right. put, he put his ethics on the line during the Civil War. Yes. And, and you know, nursed wounded and dying soldiers on mm -hmm. the battlefield. And um, so there's a there's a service ethic that comes mm -hmm. through in him as well as in Thoreau. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's interesting with Whitman that, you yeah. know, he said that his uh, his time serving in the Civil War when he was a nurse on the front lines and he was treating wounded and dying soldiers from the North and the South, he said that was what saved his faith in, faith in democracy. It wow. was actually hearing the stories of these dying soldiers on both sides that really pulled him out of his own depression, 
um, that a lot of people felt around the Civil War. Yeah. Very good. Jeremy, thanks for being with us. Um, yeah. Did you want to ask another question? No, I just again want to mention the name of the book, The Ethics of Oneness, Emerson Whitman and the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and great read. Uh, uh, we'll have all that information posted up. And uh, Jeremy, many, many more questions. I'd like to have you back on the show sometime. Yeah, that'd like be great. Up. Let's do it again. And Sounds good. And quickly, um, you alluded to a larger ethics of oneness project beyond the book. Could you say something about that? Is there a website people could go to? Because the implications <clears throat> we've only alluded to, um, you know, they're they're concrete and and important. Yeah, um, you know, I think that this has, this, this is really the direction that my own research and teaching is going, is trying to think through the implications of, of a lot of this. And so, um, you know, I'm going to be doing a continuing education workshop for Yoga Alliance, which is a, a big, you know, organization in the world um, around the idea of oneness training. Um, and thinking about, you know, all of these practices themselves are a kind of yoga. They're themselves right. a kind of training, mental and physical. And uh, I think that, you know, that's going to be the next book that I, that I write. I've been working on bits and pieces of it during the pandemic. And, um, and so I think stay tuned for that. I mean, that's something that, um, like you said, you know, thinking about, how we embody oneness and what kinds of worlds we build out of that insight, to me is a central question of democracy, a central question of politics and a, a question about whether we're gonna survive on this planet or not, mm -hmm. so. And in that context, I'm gonna give a quick plug to uh, or organization I'm on the board of called the Association for Spiritual Integrity, where we're mm. you know, trying to uh, promote the, the central role of ethics in spirituality. Um, thanks. For being Thank you so much. Again, we'll have to have you back. And uh, meanwhile, keep up the good work. And uh, any final words, Dennis? Listeners, please subscribe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's what I have to say. If, if you're listening or watching, please subscribe. It means a lot to us uh, for you to do that. And again, we have about 300 shows in our archives now, a great education, uh, some fabulous people. And we've added to that group of fabulous people today with Jeremy and uh, some of the people we've had on more than once. And uh, just like, we, hopefully we'll have Jeremy back on. And uh, tre tremendous, uh, it's been a great, great uh, education for me to, to do these interviews. So uh, yes, we, we, okay. we want to keep it uh, open and available and continue into the future, so. Yeah, thank you both for having me today. It's such a, I don't know, it's just such a privilege to talk about about this, and uh, it's so nice to meet both of you. And thanks for the good work that you're doing, just with the podcast. I mean, it's it's fantastic and it's so important. And so, I will echo with my meager social media following. Please uh, <laughs> like like this and support it. So. I friended you on Facebook just this morning. Hey, all right, there we go. Okay, I, uh, take care. Till next time. Thank you both.